You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Here's something I expect to see more of in the next year or so mississippi passed an abortion ban banning abortions after 15 weeks it was struck down by a judge because it's clearly currently unconstitutional so mississippi turned around and passed a six-week abortion ban and then had to face the same judge who made it very clear he's going to strike this one down too and asked mississippi what's next a two-week abortion ban shitty states doing shitty things that's not what i'm referring to when i say expect to see more of this In the next year or so, I am referring to Mississippi House Representative Doug McLeod, who was arrested in his home this week after punching his wife in the face for failing, in Doug's estimation, to disrobe quickly enough so that he could have sex with her. Doug McLeod, of course, is one of the sponsors of Mississippi's six-week abortion ban. So anybody out there who tells you that this isn't about controlling women or feeling entitled to women's bodies and being able to dictate their choices, that these abortion bans aren't misogynistic, that they aren't kind of disguised bank shot violence against women, might want to Google Doug McLeod and read all about the way this family values conservative, this crusader for family values, this person with such respect for the sanctity of human life and respect for women, which is why he says he endorsed the six-week ban, how he treats the women in his own life. I think we're going to see more violent misogynist assholes like Doug McLeod exposing themselves for who they actually are. One more thing about Doug McLeod, his other legislative achievements this session, loosening gun regulations, making it easier for people to buy and carry and conceal carry guns. And you know what correlates really strongly with mass shooting and gun violence, random gun violence, domestic violence. If there's anyone in Mississippi who shouldn't have a gun right now or ever again, it's Doug McLeod. All right, coming up on today's show, on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of maze. And on the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, Alex Andrews from Swap Behind Bars joins us to talk about sex work and talk about how you can help out incarcerated sex workers. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. Midwestern, mid-20s, cis female here. I'm calling in regards to how do you make a relationship survive mental illnesses. My fiance will prioritize sleeping over literally anything. He uses it as an avoidance mechanism and I don't really have an issue with it. I've told him that several times. I I know that that's part of depression. I have depression too, so I I literally do understand. But the thing is, because he sleeps so much, I end up being stuck with all of the responsibilities of adulthood between the two of us. I feel like I'm living the lives of two adults for him, and he's just existing at my side. Yeah, I just, I don't know what to do. Here's what you should do. You should break off your engagement. You don't have to break up with him. You don't have to move out. Not yet. But you should break off the engagement because your boyfriend or your fiance isn't in good working order, doesn't have his 
shit together. Now, no one has all of their shit together, but we need to have kind of a majority of our shit together. We need to be functional adults before we enter into adult commitments like marriage. So I think you go to your boyfriend and you say engagement off or wedding postponed into the distant future until you get it the help that you need and get the hell out of bed and stop shoving onto my plate all of the responsibilities of a shared life together, all the responsibilities of adulthood that people enter into long-term romantic committed relationships so that burden is spread over two people and you have your own shit to deal with as an adult and it's not fair for you to manipulate me into a corner where I feel like a terrible person because I want out of this relationship because it's not making me happy. We're not better together if I'm enabling you never to get the fuck out of bed and not to work on getting your shit together. So you're going to get the fuck out of bed. You're going to start to get your shit together. You're going to get out there and get the help you need to deal with or treat your depression or it's over at least until you do have your shit together. And then perhaps down the road we can reconnect. But right now this ain't working. So right now this is off. Hi, Dan. I had a question about men's uh, erections. My husband and I have been together for three years and um, we have a great sex life. I certainly have no complaints. But a lot of times he does uh, come kind of early before I have. And so he, uh, most often he will just sort of keep going. But doesn't that hurt? I always thought it like was quite uncomfortable for a guy to do that and um i mainly i just i don't want him making himself uncomfortable on my behalf you know there's lots of other ways that he could get me off but i did ask him about it once and he sort of said no but it was pretty non-committal um and i know for me like once i've climaxed it's very uncomfortable like almost to the point of being painful if there's like any stimulation like uh, there again. So I just, I was just wondering if you could shed some light on that. Cause I really don't want him to be, you know, causing himself any pain on my behalf. There's a kink called apple polishing and it basically consists of some guy has just come and you continue to not stroke him. You continue to apply really direct and intense stimulation to the glands of his penis, to the head of his cock. And it is unbearable. Guys thrash and scream. There are videos. You can go online and find them if you care to. But here's the thing. In a moment or two, the intensity, the nerve endings being so fucking fried, passes and the dude still has an erection. It is possible to come and to just breathe through that moment of hypersensitive nerve endings and then continue to fuck. And it's not painful. It doesn't cause a guy any discomfort. I would point you to other forms of pornography out there. Get online. Watch yourself some gay pornography. You will see a lot of videos where a guy comes often on the outside of his male partner's body, often around his butt, waits a second and then sticks his dick back in and continues to fuck the bottom until the bottom comes. It's not unbearable. It's not painful. You should take your husband's word for it when he tells you that it's not uncomfortable for him. I imagine that what he's doing after he comes is he's he's pausing and staying still inside you after he comes until that supercharged, intense, head of the penis on fire feeling subsides and then he begins to fuck you again. And it's not torture for him and it doesn't make him uncomfortable. 
So take yes for an answer. And this is a conversation that you should be able to have with your husband of three years and your sex partner about what works for him and works for you. And you should both be able to acknowledge that perhaps your bodies function a little bit differently. Stimulation after orgasm, perhaps for a longer period of time, is uncomfortable and unpleasant for you. Stimulation after orgasm, soon after orgasm, not uncomfortable or painful for him. You will just have to take his word for it when he dicks you down and then continues to dick you down after his orgasm. But if his word alone won't suffice, go watch some gay pornography. Hi, Dan. So I started attending SLAW, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, after doing some CODA recovery. And I don't perceive myself as a sex addict. I definitely identify with the love addict component. But I'm having a really hard time because I really love what the uh, 12 steps can do for, um, you know, self-care and for self-help, for, you know, regulating yourself and whatever. But I don't think it's right to say that sex is always an addiction just because you use it for fun. Like in the SLAW manual, it said like, you know, we sought out sex because, you know, our bodies were like corpses and we needed a cattle prod of electricity. And that metaphor really disturbed me. Like, we're humans. Like, we all enjoy sex. It's all, you know, whether it's with the love of your life or a one-night stand, right, the reason why you do it is because it, you want it. So I don't know if I'm agreeing with this language of, like, oh, just anytime you... It's like sex shaming. But at the same time, I appreciate the love. I know it's take what you want, leave the rest, but, like, it's really fucking with my head and with my sexuality. Unless you've been ordered by a court to attend sex and love addicts anonymous meetings, you don't have to continue to attend these bullshit meetings that are making you unhappy. Yeah, that shit in the manual, it's garbage. People sometimes have sex for the wrong reasons, just like people sometimes have dinner for the wrong reasons, get married for the wrong reasons. People who are damaged will reach for something, some nearby tool, something that they can beat themselves up with. And for some people, that is sex. But that's not about an addiction to sex. That's about an underlying issue and that but that's not about addiction to sex and all of these things you've read about dopamines and love hormones and people becoming addicted to them it's crap because the same hormones and dopamine and natural oxycontins are released by our brains when we play video games when we see the faces of our children and we don't talk about addiction well we talk about addiction to video games we don't talk about being addicted to looking into our children's fucking faces Walk the fuck away from this organization. And yeah, it is deeply sex negative. We are a sensation and variety seeking species, but we only pathologize it in our sex negative, sex shaming culture when a boner or a wet spot comes attached to it. People jump out of airplanes. People go bungee jumping. People go downhill slalom skiing. People see movies for vicarious thrills to make themselves feel alive, to get that jolt of electricity. And no one has a problem with it until somebody has an erection or some woman is all wet. Then we have a problem with it. Not because we have a problem with that kind of adrenaline, get that shit pumping move. We don't have a problem with it unless sex is involved. Then suddenly it's a huge problem. I think it's partly a huge problem because we all have watched a friend or a loved one blow their lives up with their dicks or their pussies. People can do that. And we hear about sex when people have a lot of it or it's super adventurous when it blows someone's life up. Because if somebody is doing it in a reasonable, rational way and they're not out of control, even if sometimes they're 
doing the sexual equivalent of bungee jumping or skydiving, if it doesn't blow up their life, we don't hear about their sexual adventures and experiences because why would we unless we're their confidant? So we tend to associate sexual thrill-seeking with self-destruction because that's when we hear about it. And because we're steeped in a sex-negative culture, confirmation bias comes into play and we go, ah, look, look, sex is dangerous, sex is addictive. All that said, why are you going to these fucking stupid meetings? If you know what they're saying is bullshit and it's making you miserable and negatively impacting your sex life. What kind of masochism is that? Hi, Dan and Nancy. Uh, Dan, I have, a, I have a question for you regarding these recent uh, state anti-abortion laws being passed in places like Georgia and Alabama that are so ridiculously restrictive that even people like Pat Robertson are saying they go too far. And, you know, as, as a lot of us probably already know, this is obviously a strategy to get them challenged in court so that uh, eventually it can get up to the Supreme Court, which opens up Roe v. Wade to be challenged again at a time when the Supreme Court is stacked with GOP toadies. Well, you, you almost have to grudgingly admire the strategy going on here on the other side. But in the name of acting strategically in response, what would happen if they didn't make those challenges? What if the ACLU and Planned Parenthood stood down and let the laws stick? These are laws that I, I, I can assume most people, even in those states, don't really want, at least not in that form. I can't imagine even in Alabama, a majority of people think it's just that a, a doctor can be put in jail for giving an 11-year-old rape victim an abortion. So what if these states are allowed to have these laws on the books and reap the repercussions? The, the actors who are already saying they won't film movies there, companies that won't open factories there, move their head offices, and organizations won't have their conventions there as long as these laws stand. Why don't we let ostracism and scorn and ridicule get rid of these laws instead of playing patsy to this strategy that could see Roe v. Wade overturned, which um, I suspect most people listening think would be a horrible thing to have happen. So I don't know if somebody's thought about this already or if it's a bad idea for some reason. Um, it can't be a worse idea than gay Israel, and you played that guy's call. So I'd love to hear what you think about this. You know, for a very long time, Republicans, anti-choice Republicans, also known as all Republicans, since Christine Todd Whitman rode off into the sunset, Google her kids, have had the luxury of advocating for a deeply unpopular position on abortion, banning abortion, a human life amendment, because they knew that the Supreme Court wasn't going to allow that to happen. And so they could demagogue about this issue and press for it without real consequence at the ballot box. And liberals and progressives and Dems took it for granted that whatever the Republicans were doing or saying, the Supreme Court was the backstop that would prevent those policies from being enacted. So we didn't have to take the courts that seriously, that we could throw our vote away on a charlatan and a fraud like Jill Stein or Ralph Nader, because there really wasn't a difference between the Democrats and the Republicans and blah, blah, blah. Nothing really was at stake. And if a Democrat like a Hillary Clinton running for president said, you know, think about Justices on the Supreme Court, who's going to be appointing them and what those consequences might be if it's Donald Trump appointing them. People shouted her down for fear mongering. She got yelled at. She got dragged for pointing to the court and saying that's something you might want to take into consideration as you head to the ballot box. Maybe she was mongering legitimate fucking fears, stuff we should have been goddamn thinking about and goddamn afraid of because here we are. 
Anyway, anyway I'm, I'm far afield from your question. I don't think your idea is as ridiculous as gay Israel or reparations for cocksuckers like me. Please send me $10 via PayPal for every blowjob I gave so I can retire. Your question is basically, you know, the GOP is the dog that's been chasing the car. Well, what if we let the dog catch the car? What then? Suddenly they will, a lot of conservative commentators believe, a lot of political pundits believe, they will pay an electoral price that they haven't in the past. There's a map circulating on the internet that shows the states where support for legal abortion is over 50%. And you know what? It's every single fucking state, including the state of Alabama, including Georgia, including Missouri, including Ohio. Every state that's enacted one of these terrible bans on abortion, in the case of Alabama, without an exception for rape or incest, Abortion enjoys majority support, but the majority has been able to set aside their support for abortion and vote other issues in those races because nothing was going to happen, because abortion wasn't going to be banned, because the Supreme Court wasn't going to allow it. Well, here we are with the Supreme Court that is highly likely to allow it. Do we let the fucking Republican dog catch the anti-choice car and then let him pay the price? So do we stop opposing these bills? Do we stop trying to block them? Do we let them go into effect? Well, I think that makes a kind of intellectual sense. I think that's satisfying on some level emotionally to contemplate. But in reality, the sooner these laws go into effect, the sooner women die. The sooner these laws go into effect, the sooner women will be prosecuted and their doctors will be thrown into prison for providing them with healthcare, aka abortion services. So I do think we have to fight these laws with everything that we can. And I think we have to get stays and injunctions to prevent them from going into effect to save the lives in the short term of the women who will otherwise die or be prosecuted to keep out of jail doctors who will otherwise be prosecuted and imprisoned if these laws go into effect. And if they catch the fucking car, if the Supreme Court overturns Roe at the request of Ala fucking Bama. Well, then they've caught the car. And if we can delay them catching the car for a couple of years, that's going to be better in the short run for the women of Alabama. And the electoral price that Republicans will pay if Roe is overturned, if they fucking catch that car, they will pay that price. That bill will come due in time. Hi, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I am from the Midwest in my uh, mid-20s, and I'm calling because I have a younger cousin who's about 13 years old and she is obviously on social media. So she's been using Instagram and I went to her story today and pulled it up uh, just to see what's up. And I noticed that it was this image that says in bold lettering, no one should be okay with killing babies over and over and over again. A lot of my friends have been posting on Instagram, men shouldn't be making laws about women's bodies. <laughs> and I am on that boat, absolutely. And so when I saw this, it made me kind of sad because we come from a Catholic family. And, you know, I know that her mom is very pro choice. And, you know, I feel like she might only be getting one perspective at this point in her life. And so I kind of was just curious if you have any advice, if you would reach out to her and say anything, or if you would just stay out of it, if you have any advice, if you would say anything, I would love to hear it. 
you should definitely say something. If your cousin is old enough to be sharing her political opinions online, she's old enough to encounter people, maybe people she's related to, maybe people she knows and likes whose opinions she will take into consideration to encounter those people and to hear back from those people. Instagram, when you're delivering political messages on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or anywhere else, it's not a one-way street or a one-way megaphone. Is a one-way megaphone a thing? It's not. You're going to hear back and get pushback from people. And I think it's important that you speak up. You can start with no one's killing babies. We're talking about allowing women to make their own choice about terminating a pregnancy about aborting a fetus, which is not an infant, which is not a baby. There is a difference and a distinction. And then engage with her. Hear her out. Let her say what she wants to say. Catholics are likelier to support choice than evangelical Christians. And Catholic women are just as likely, according to a study that came out in 2018, to get an abortion as any other woman in America. So don't assume that just because her mom is Catholic and you said pro-choice— about her mom. I believe you meant to say pro no choice, pro forced birth, but don't assume just because her mom opposes abortion because of her Catholicism that your cousin can't come around on this issue or that even her mother couldn't come around on this issue. But nobody comes around on an issue unless they're forced to think about it. And a 13-year-old, I promise you, hasn't given this much thought. So... Give her a little food for thought. Give your cousin a little food for thought. She might blow up. She might get angry at you. She might reject everything that you have to say. But I promise you, even if she doesn't come around instantly, could plant a seed that brings her around eventually. Dan Savage, hi. Big fan. Got all the books and everything. Never called, but had to. Because big dilemma. So there's this girl that I really like. So four months I've been seeing her. About a month into it, she says, it's not you, it's me. So we didn't see each other for like a week. She comes back a week later and tells me, uh, I changed my mind. I want to be with you, uh, blah, blah, blah. The next morning, because she stayed the night, we didn't have sex. We still haven't had sex. Uh, but she stayed the night. The next morning, she took like a couple hundred dollars out of my wallet and just left. Like a dummy, I let her back in the house. She apologized. We hung out again. We got a hotel room for three nights. We, I, I, I even bought her parents' a hotel room because they got some living situation problems. I did a lot of stuff for her. And still yet, she has not had sex with me. So the shitty thing is, is after the three nights in the hotel room with no sex, we were supposed to go on a date. She didn't show up. So I walked to her ex-boyfriend's house, and sure enough, she was there. And he says they were fucking. So she's not fucking me, but she's fucking him. But she still wants to come over all the time. I mean, it could be just because she wants to do my drugs and, like, I give her, like, five or ten bucks here and there. I don't know. But, like, I need to be able to tell her, like, listen, first of all, if anything, I deserve some booty by now. Because we're talking about, you know, thousands of dollars worth of marijuana and fucking money alone. And heartache. So, I don't know. Maybe you could help me out. She's never going to fuck you. Ever. Actually, I take that back. She might fuck you if you say to her, look, if you want to keep coming over here, if you want to keep using my drugs, if you want me to treat you to future weekends and hotels, I have to have some booty. You might get some booty then. But at what cost? 
she will feel entitled to more of your drugs, to lifting more of your money from your wallet while you're asleep, to taking more advantage of you than she already has. Dude, she doesn't want to fuck you. She's using you and you're allowing her to use you because you want to get in her pants and that is making you stupid. You are engaged in some very serious dickful thinking here. That's why you're letting this thief and mooch back into your apartment and back into your life over and over and over again. If you want a commodified relationship, I give you this amount of money. I give you this amount of drugs. You give me this amount of booty. Get an honest sex worker as opposed to the dishonest grifter that you're hanging out with now. Block her number. Change your locks. Don't see her again. Don't give her any more drugs. Don't give her any more fucking money. Cut her out of your life. You're being used. You're a mark. You're not a potential future boyfriend who gets booty. You're a mark and a fool that she's going to continue to take advantage of so long as you let her. And you need to rip it out of your head. Reach into that motherboard. Pull out those circuits that tell you that you are entitled to sex from this woman or any other woman. Of course, if you meet up with an honest sex worker and offer her a certain amount of money in exchange for a certain kind of sexual attention or sexual indulgence, you have a right to expect that then. That's an honest exchange. You don't have a right to sex from someone just because you bought him dinner, just because you took him to a hotel for a weekend, just because you got him high. You are not entitled to sex under those circumstances. And if you meet a sex worker and you provide her with a certain amount of money, even then you're not entirely entitled to sex. If you do something creepy or weird, the sex worker can withdraw her consent and leave. So you got to be a decent, respectful dude. I don't want to come down on you too hard. You are the person being taken advantage of in the situation. You're the person allowing yourself to be taken advantage of. But one of the reasons that she's been able to take advantage of you is this idea that you have in your head that you're entitled to sex after a certain amount of pot, money, dinner, hotel, blah, blah, blah. That's allowed her to leverage. She's using that as leverage to continue to take from you because you're living in false hope that that entitles you to sex when it doesn't. Hi, Dan. Quick question for you. So two weeks ago, I had an amazing Tinder date with a guy and it ended up turning into like a four day back to back sleepover, hangout, talk, cuddle, amazing sex awesome experience. He lives in Northern Canada and I live in Arizona. And we both discussed that, you know, we most likely won't see each other again and aren't ready for a relationship. So that's fine. I feel good about that. But I just found out this morning that I am pregnant and it's, I mean, I'm, I'm in shock, first of all, but my first thought was, how do I tell this guy? Because first of all, he doesn't want kids. He told me that. Second of all, we don't really have an ongoing relationship. And third of all, I'm afraid of his reaction. I think that he'll be mad, even though he participated in being irresponsible sexually with me. And I think that he'll just beg me to get an abortion. And I don't want to do that. I 100% want to keep to keep it. I just don't know how long to wait because I feel like it's too early. I'm like maybe two weeks pregnant at this point. How long do I wait? And when the time comes, how do I tell him? I don't really expect him to be around, but 
I just don't know how guilty I should feel for basically saying, um, I accidentally got pregnant with your child and I'm keeping it no matter what you say. (laughs) I don't know what to do. I don't know what I can expect from him out of this, like responsibility wise. I don't know how to prepare myself emotionally for his reaction. You have an absolute right to have this baby if that's what you decide to do. It's your body and it's your choice. You can't control how he's going to feel about this. And you sound tense about telling him for fear of the negative reaction that you are going to get. He is not going to be pleased about this news. As you know, he told you that he has no interest in being a parent ever. Something he should have thought about before he blew loads inside you? You two had unprotected sex. You say that you chose to take risks together in the moment. And when he went ahead and blew those loads in you, you two didn't use condoms and you were on no other form of birth control and he didn't do his screw diligence and you didn't do yours either, he ceded his right to dictate the outcome if indeed you got pregnant. And you did. And you're keeping it. And that's non-negotiable. So you will inform him that he is biologically at least and perhaps financially going to be a father. There's nothing that you can say that's going to make that news welcome. There's nothing that you can say that's going to make him happy to learn that he is going to be a father. Most likely you say you're only two weeks pregnant or two weeks overdue. Plenty of people are a few weeks late have that period. Many, many people spontaneously miscarry, not crossing my fingers or anything. These are just facts. So I wouldn't call him right now and tell him I would wait a month or two until you're certain that you are pregnant and then let him know. And guys, telling a woman that you're having unprotected sex with, that you aren't interested in being a father is not a form of birth control, physically, cosmically, not a form of birth control. It's not going to prevent you from becoming a parent if the obvious thing that might happen happens. If you really don't want to be someone's daddy, if you really don't want that decision taken out of your hands, get a vasectomy. Be vigilant about condoms. Be careful about where and when and in whom you blow those loads. You have to think about that shit in advance. Because after you've knocked up some Tinder date after a four-day sexcapade, it's too late. It's not your decision to make anymore, fellas. And finally, I'm not going to tell you to get an abortion. I'll let him do that when you call him. But I don't understand why you wouldn't want to get an abortion. I don't understand why anyone would want to parent, even from afar, with a person who had no desire to be a parent and may be angry about that fact that they're a parent. Not against their will. He participated, but angry about the fact that they are a parent for the rest of their lives. It doesn't seem like an ideal parenting circumstance, but it is your choice ultimately to make, as was the unprotected sex that you chose to have with him and that he chose to have with you. A lot of choices happened in advance of the choice you're making now. Hi, Dan. I just gave advice to a friend that I figured wasn't the best. She's newly married, uh, but been with her partner for a decade. I should also say that we aren't close. I would say casual acquaintances. Um, I wasn't even a guest at her wedding. 
she called to ask for advice, um, and she said she didn't know who to talk to, and I know she doesn't have um, many close friends. So 15 minutes uh, after her calling me, she was at my doorstep crying um, because she wants to leave her husband for another man. Or maybe just because she doesn't love her husband anymore and she didn't know. She said she'd only known the new man for a few weeks and that he too was in a relationship and willing to break it off. She says she no longer feels sexually connected to her husband and when he gets upset with her, he hits her. He also secretly hid cameras around their home and her apartment in another city where she sometimes lives for her job. Her mother thinks that she should have a baby with him to break the prenup that they have um, that limits her from receiving any money if she divorces him without a child. He is in the 0.01%. He's very wealthy, but uh, I would say she makes an upper middle class wage. I told her um, from your advice that you shouldn't scramble your DNA to save your marriage. And I told her that leaving her marriage for another man that she just met wouldn't fix the pain that she feels about her marriage. I also told her maybe her and her husband should seek therapy. I can't describe how blase she was about the abuse. It was almost as if it was irrelevant. And I almost didn't put a lot of weight into it while I advised her. But now that I'm recounting the conversation, I fear I didn't do enough to talk to her about the abuse. Did I say the wrong thing? What should I have said? I I have a feeling like she's going to reach out again as she handles this problem. So maybe with your help, I can help this woman that I barely know. I don't think your friend should take her mother's advice. I don't think she should scramble her DNA together with this guy to save her marriage or break that prenup. I think she should get the fuck out. I don't think she should leave her husband for this person she's only known for a few weeks and then immediately throw herself into some other relationship. She needs to get the fuck out of this abusive relationship. And if she gets the fuck out without a kid, yeah, she won't be a member of the 0.01% in the future, but she will enjoy an upper middle class income and she won't have to interact with this piece of shit ever again. To ask her what price she would pay to be free and clear of her abusive husband forever. She has a kid with him. She's basically involving him in her life for two decades. He can drag her into court. He can fight her on custody. He can fight her on every decision she ever makes about or wants to make about schooling or religion. It just the kind of person who's physically abusive, who's hiding cameras in the house, is the kind of person who, after you leave them, if they have the opportunity, if they have the entry point, will continue to abuse you and terrorize you. So she needs to get the fuck out of this relationship. And if she can prove the abuse, I would have her talk to a lawyer. There may be a clause in her prenup. Hopefully she had a lawyer look at the prenup too before she signed it. She may be able to break the prenup by proving abuse. But even if she can't, Even if she walks away with nothing, she actually walks away with her own capacity to earn an income. She walks away with a future for herself that is free of this man, free and clear of this man, because she doesn't have a fucking kid by him. Your friend, and you say you're not close, shouldn't listen to her mother. She should listen to you. She should listen to me. But in the end, you can't control her or the choices that she ultimately makes. So say your piece. And then back the fuck off and remind yourself that it ain't your monkey ultimately and this ain't your circus. 
Hi, Dan. You, I'm so glad that you want wedding questions because I'll just go ahead and put you on speed dial from now on. So my uh, current problem has to do with my guest list. We're, we are a 50-person wedding, and we've invited 63. More than half of those are my extended family, and we fully expect for a lot of them to not come so we can get that number down to 50, and then we can save money on uh, catering by having a buffet versus a, a plated dinner. So the problem came last week when my mother-in-law, she found out that two people that she invited couldn't come to the wedding, so she asked you replace it with two more people. I didn't see a problem, um, told my mom about it, and my mom lost her shit because my mother-in-law was inviting a family friend or a friend, not not family. And my mom lost her head and was like, we're not inviting our friends. And bloody, bloody, blah, started attacking my mother-in-law. And the, the real bitch of this is that we only have seven of our friends coming total, three and four respectively. And I just don't know how to navigate these arguments. We still don't know what the numbers are going to be for who's paying what, because that was on my fiance's to-do list to ask his mom about uh, probably like the day after the wedding, and he still hasn't done it. So do you have any advice for navigating this one? The day after the wedding seems like terrible timing, a terrible time to ask your mother-in-law how much money she's going to kick in to pay for the wedding you already had. Also, asking your in-laws to subsidize or finance your wedding is just a, a terrible idea generally. You should have the wedding that you can afford. And if that means a potluck in somebody's house and a wedding in the garden, then you have a potluck at somebody's house and a wedding in the garden. If you ask your parents to contribute financially to your wedding to pay for it, they believe they should have some modicum of control over it. So, yeah, anyway, a wedding question. I observed a couple of weeks ago that I don't get many wedding questions. And apparently making that observation, saying that out loud, open the wedding question floodgates. And here we go. Tell your mother-in-law that she can invite a couple of friends. Remind your mother-in-law that you invited more people than you can accommodate. And so you were counting on some of the guests falling away. And so she can't replace everyone who's been invited with some other friend of hers because then there's going to be more people at the wedding than you can afford to feed. But let your mother-in-law invite the two people she's already invited and say to your mother, okay, you get two people, just like mom-in-law got two people. You can invite two friends. She invited two friends. No more fucking friends. And then remind both that you're counting on not everyone that you invited being able to make it to the wedding. And so no more invites will be going out and no new people will be contacted who weren't in the initial batch of invites. And if your mom and your future mother-in-law continue to have these kinds of fits, push back hard. Tell them it's your wedding. You get to determine who's on the guest list and it's done. And no more names will be added after the to your friends, to your friends, period, the end. It'll be easier, of course, to assert yourself in this way if you are paying for your own fucking wedding and not asking mom or mom-in-law to kick in. Hi, Dan. This is a 30-year-old cis gay Jew. Uh, I'm calling because I'm getting married in a month. I sent out my invitations a while ago, including to some friends I've had for seven years. I was at their wedding. We're close, so I invited them to our wedding. They sent me back an RSVP declining, and they wrote us a long letter that they enclosed, where they talk about how they love us, and then they quoted the Bible, and then they wrote, you might wonder why we are telling you this. 
We're sharing this, the gospel, which literally means good news, because we love you both. We believe that this is the key to life on earth and life after earth. To be silent about it is to suggest that we don't love you enough to tell you what we think is the truth. Honestly, we have been silent for too long, and we are sorry for that, but we do love you. Because we believe this, we also accept the Bible as an authoritative text in our lives. It is evident from God's design for marriage that it should be shared between a man and a woman. It is hard for us to accept this sometimes because we know that it is hurtful to others. We imagine that it is hurtful to you both. But though we don't understand everything, we do believe that God is bigger than what we can understand and we trust him. We do want to be clear and say that we are not against your right to get married. We support that. We just don't feel right celebrating it because of our faith. So it is with heavy hearts that we have to decline your invitation. We hope you can see that we love you both so much, and we do wish you a life full of true and authentic joy. We hope to continue to support you in friendship and come visit soon. If you want to talk more about any of this, please give us a call. So I can no longer be friends with these people, and needless to say, they will not be welcome to visit us. I want to reply and tell them that I'm hurt and that I disagree with this, and if they truly still wanted to be friends, they should have said nothing. I want to change their minds, but I know I probably can't. What should I say to let them know that it is not okay? Is there a scripture I can quote as to how this anti-gay biblical sentiment is invalid? Do I say that us being friends in the first place under false pretenses was dishonest on their part? Do I take them up on their offer to call and talk about it? Please help. They do not love you. They never did. These friends of seven years you've just discovered never really loved you. Love their imaginary friend and their interpretation of a large, complex, contradictory, self-negating book more than they love living, breathing human beings standing in front of them. And you could, if you wanted to, toss the first and greatest commandment in their faces. Jesus said the first commandment is to love thy neighbor as thyself. And they certainly showed up for their own fucking weddings. And so they should show up for your fucking wedding if they truly loved you. I don't think you should have any further contact with these people. You can send them, if you care to, Matthew Vine's terrific book, God and the Gay Christian. Maybe that'll open your eyes. But their invitation to have a dialogue is just asking you to show up on the phone or in person, to be further bullied, to be proselytized at. And I don't think you should give them that opportunity to love you in this abusive, horrifying, ass-holy way. And I think you should ask for the toaster, or whatever the fuck you guys got them for their wedding. Ask for that toaster back. If they felt this way about gay people and about gay love, inviting gay couples to their wedding to celebrate their marriage, yeah, that was an asshole head fake of a move. And this not against your right to marry, just not going to celebrate. That's like telling someone, I don't oppose you having a birthday. I just don't want to celebrate your birth. Yeah, no more contact with these assholes. No more opportunities for them to be jerks to you. Block them. If you want to send them Matthew Vine's terrific book and enclose a short card that says, fuck you both. Hey, Dan and the tech savvy at risk youth. So I am in a monogamous relationship. I was historically poly for about five years before transitioning with this new partner. And I'm calling about jealousy. So my best friend is doing a destination wedding, which I agree with you should be banned. Uh, And I'm I'm seeing it, so I need to go. Uh, And I'm glad to be there. The problem is my ex, who is also currently my best friend and one of my favorite people, uh, is in the wedding party and we're going. And I have no problem being in the same country as my ex for a week. I care about him a great deal. He's one of my closest friends. But my partner can't come to this wedding and is just wringing his hands and 
is saying things like, I feel like I have to go because I feel like I need to be there if you're in an all-inclusive resort with your ex. And he says he trusts me, but this is showing me that he doesn't. And we just can't seem to talk about it. And I can't seem to work around it. And I'm just really struggling with jealousy, being in a different country, not even, I'm not staying in the same room. I'm in the same hotel as my ex. And I just can't communicate with my current partner about why this is totally okay. Well, there's an easy solution here. You dump your boyfriend, dump your current partner, and then you can go off to the wedding and fuck your ex with a clear conscience. I can understand if you don't want to do that, if you want to stay with your current partner. But to stay with your current partner, you need him to trust you when you're out of his sight. You can be compassionate and understanding and considerate of his insecurities. You used to be poly until you met him. But you've committed to him and you made a monogamous commitment to him. You can reason with him. You can remind him that the world is full of men that you would, if you were in an open relationship, be tempted to fuck. And every day that you're with him, you don't fuck any of those men that you otherwise might be tempted to fuck if you were in a poly relationship. Because you're not in a poly or open relationship. You're in a monogamous relationship. And thus far, you have honored your monogamous commitment. And you intend to continue to honor that monogamous commitment, whether you're in close proximity to an ex you might want to fuck, or whether you're in close proximity to some hot dude on the subway you might want to fuck. But if you said all that to him and it hasn't had an impact, well, then you're just going to have to put your foot down. Tell him he's going to have to trust you. You're going to this wedding. You will not fuck this dude or any other dudes at the wedding. If you want to throw him a bone, you can tell him he can FaceTime you whenever he wants, and you'll spin around in a circle in whatever room you're in, and he'll see that... Your ex-boyfriend is not on his knees in the room eating your fucking pussy at that goddamn moment. Maybe that's not a reasonable accommodation for his insecurities, but if there is a reasonable accommodation, something that he can ask of you that you will do that will put him at ease and you're willing to do it, well, then you could do that thing. But you don't want to set a precedent where every time you're out of his sight, he's going to have this kind of a fucking meltdown. He has to trust you when you're out of his sight. Even if you're encountering a temptation and your ex-boyfriend at a destination wedding in another hotel room is not the only temptation you will encounter over the life of your committed monogamous sexually exclusive relationship with this guy. So he's going to have to grow up and get over it. And this wedding offers a perfect opportunity for him to demonstrate that kind of growth to you, which is something that you should require from him as a condition of staying in this relationship at all. Hi, Dan. I have a question for you, my husband and I. Um, we really need your help in a certain situation. We're not quite what to do. We're happily married. Things are great. We have a friend of ours, however, who was in this long relationship about five years. And the big fella in the relationship, the girl is our friend. The fella in the relationship said he never wanted to get married, wasn't into it, never said I loved you. You know, their relationship was exclusive, but everybody who who were friends of theirs could see it was going nowhere so um, unfortunately uh, or my our friend of the female in the situation loved and adored this guy and obviously wanted more unfortunately the relationship did end after uh, four years and it's sad it's sad for everybody involved that that that, that happened however friend um, now we're a couple years out whenever she talks to us or new people insists on referring to her well my divorce or yes, when I got divorced, blah, 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 you know, and she's speaking this in regards to her relationship with this guy that she lived with for a while. 
And my husband and I don't really know what to do about it because it's obviously, you know, they weren't married. She knows they weren't married. They they had a tumultuous relationship, you know, of forced commitment. And, and we don't want to make her feel any worse about the fact that the relationship is over. But it's not a divorce. And we don't really know how we should approach that with our friend or if it's even any of our effing business on on that. I don't know. We don't really know what to do. We love our friend and we want the best for her. Help us out. Help you out? Help you out of what? How is this hurting you? Your friend is using a word imprecisely. She's using a word that for her captures the emotional truth of this experience. Feels to her like a divorce. Felt to her like a marriage. Yes, she's being a little fast and loose with the language, but so fucking what? Ding, 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 ding. You said it. None of your fucking business how your friend describes this breakup. So yeah, no, just don't police your friend. This is a waste of time and emotional energy. I, I don't understand how this is in any way, shape, or form a personal affront. How does it impact you at all? This is the sort of thing where somebody says that and if it bothers you that somebody says it, you kind of roll your eyes privately or maybe at your spouse and shrug it off because it ain't any of your business and it does you no harm for your friend to use and abuse these two syllables in this way. Let it go. Hi, Dan. I am a mid-30s woman living in the East Coast. And I wanted to find out what is your opinion about a 50-year-old woman and man who have uh, children that are 8 and 10, and they um, let their children see them naked and walk around the house, allowing the kids to see them naked and showering. I'm just thinking that is inappropriate. I'm not trying to shame anyone. Um, I understand they're a very open family, but my friends and I have been talking about this and we feel like it is inappropriate. Just wondering what your thoughts are. We're going to transition out of this tsunami of wedding question calls, uh, but continue with the threat of none of your fucking business. This is none of your fucking business. Doesn't impact you at all. It's not something I wanted to do when I was 10 or 11 years old. I didn't want to shower naked with my parents, but I didn't grow up in a family that was very comfortable with nudity. And I took that to heart. And I'm still uncomfortable with nudity, mostly my own, fine with other people. But these kids were raised differently and have different values and different comfort levels. And I assure you that they're not being traumatized by their parents. They could be, however, traumatized by an uninvolved third party kicking in their front door to express their disapproval all over the place. This is another roll your eyes at your partner, shrug and let it go because it doesn't involve you at all and you shouldn't get involved in it at all. Hey there, Dan. I am a 26-year-old uh, gay male living in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and I have a problem I need your help with. So... I have a good friend who I recently discovered is um, is gay himself. Uh, we've known each other for about five years or so. And within the last year, I developed feelings for him. I made my move. He shot me down. You know, I've gotten to the point where I know, you know, he and I are not going to happen. Problem is, I found out through mutual friends that... He is being pursued by a manizer, if, if you will. Like he, 
This guy, he is known through the gay community around us for purposely targeting, you know, fresh off the closet gays or guys who have not had their first sexual experience. And, you know, he, he literally calls himself a cherry picker and he's very smooth. Now, he's pursuing my friend and I want to warn him. I'm just not sure how to go about it without possibly coming off as if I'm still interested in him. So this guy, this guy who is hitting on or making a play for this newly out guy who rejected you, he's the welcome wagon. Well, some people want to climb up on the welcome wagon. If I could get you on the phone and I tried, I would have asked you a couple of follow-up questions. Like, is this guy a good first experience? Are all the guys that he's leapt on after they came out of the closet grateful for the experience? Are they friends with this guy now? Or does he leave a lot of broken hearts and sore feelings in his wake? Does he target guys who are just on their way out of the closet because he perceives them to be naive and easily manipulated? If that's the case, you might want to give your friend a heads up. If he's a good first-time experience, you might want to keep your fucking mouth shut. But if he's a terrible first-time experience, if he exploits guys, if he makes promises that he has no intention of keeping, if he's just interested in using them, having first use of them, then you should say something. And you need to frame whatever it is you decide to say to this guy with, I realize that this is, I'm probably not the right messenger for this. I realize it's going to seem like sour grapes. Everything you said to me, just say to him. I asked you out and you said no and no is no. And I'm only saying this because I'm concerned and I care about you. But that guy who's making a play for you right now, he's kind of terrible. And you don't have to take my word for it because caller, if indeed he's left a string of broken hearts in his wake, there are other guys out there who had terrible first-time experiences with this guy, and you can gently nudge your new friend, because he's not going to be your boyfriend, you want to be friends with him, in the direction of other people who can warn him off this guy, a personal experience with this guy. It's less likely to backfire. You're less likely to accidentally push him into this guy's arms when you try to warn him off the guy if you own how odd it is or not ideal it is that you're the one doing the warning, considering your history with the dude you are delivering that warning to. Hi, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old queer female from Oregon. I'm calling because my mother and I are being harassed by someone who may or may not be an ex-sugar daddy of mine. My mom started getting harassing texts about a year ago from somebody claiming to be a sugar daddy and texting her all kinds of nonsense and lies about me mixed with the truth. They've texted me as well, um, always from a different burner numbers. This has been occurring on and off all year, and I'm at a loss at, for how to stop it. From the research I've done, if I wanted to file a police report for harassment, I'd need to submit my cell records to the police. My concern is I've been a sex worker since I was 18, and so my hands aren't exactly clean. I know that this isn't your area of expertise. But I was wondering if there's a chance that pursuing a harassment case could leave me vulnerable for being charged for something based on my cell records or if you have any other advice for my situation. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Alex Andrews is the co-founder of Swap Behind Bars and sits on the board of Swap USA. Swap stands for the Sex Workers Outreach Project and Swap Behind Bars specifically advocates for incarcerated sex workers. Hey, Alex, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much. So basically, this woman doesn't want to become an incarcerated sex worker and is concerned that if she goes to the police to file a harassment complaint, 
they might dig through her phone records, realize what she does for a living and arrest her too. Is that a real and legitimate fear? It's absolutely a real and legitimate fear. Um, the most likely scenario that would happen was she would go, she would file her harassment complaint. First of all, they probably wouldn't pay any attention or do anything about it. And then secondly, there is a, a very good chance that she would then be targeted for harassment by the police. So then she's kind of got to double down on her issue. Um, if she wanted to, there are other means that she can use in circumventing the police in order to um, file a, you know, to, to stop this harassment. And one of those things is to um, write a cease and desist letter and have it served to him um, with a process server. Um, and once that's done, that is a legal way to where she can then go before a judge saying, you know, I, I filed this cease and desist and he continues to harass me. And then a judge can issue an order of protection, which will allow, which means that he can no longer contact her by phone, email, text, nothing whatsoever. And it'll remain in effect for a period of time. I'm familiar with those orders of protection. If you get one and then somebody violates it, they're not violating you. They're violating the court. They're, they're, they're running exactly. afoul of, exactly. of a court order and they're in trouble with the court and not with you. Um, I, I want to back up though. You know, if she were to go to the police and file a complaint and have to, you know, give them her phone records, she'd also possibly have to tell them how it is this person came into her life in the first place uh, and it's just such a great example of how laws criminalizing sex work make the lives of sex workers more dangerous and make them more vulnerable to abuse and exploitation. So all the people out there listening, and I hope that I don't have many regular listeners who oppose uh, decriminalization or support criminalization, criminalizing prostitution is not a way to protect or save people who are engaged in sex work. It just makes them more vulnerable. It puts them in greater danger period, the end. Whatever reason they might be doing sex work in the first place, if you're concerned about the people doing sex work and you want to help them, you want to quote-unquote rescue them, criminalization is not the way to do it. Absolutely not. Because if sex work were decriminalized, she could do what? She didn't have to worry about the police. She she wouldn't have to worry about the police um, arresting her. She wouldn't have to worry about them harassing her. Um, A great example is New Zealand, which is one of the, the very few areas where sex work is decriminalized. Um, and we, we had one of our co-founders go to New Zealand and spend five months there interviewing sex workers and working with an organization who works directly with the government. And one of the questions she asked them was, so how do you deal with, you know, violence from the police? And they just looked at us with these dumbfounded looks saying, violence in the police, why would we have that? And the reason they don't have it is because the police can now take action against people who might assault or harass or bother a sex worker. Um, it's just, it's a crime there to, to do that. Mm-hmm. So that makes a, you know, that makes a huge difference in the quality of life that you have um, as a sex worker. In addition to that, sex workers who want assistance or if they decide that they want to exit the sex industry, they're literally able to walk into a building, say, I think that I would like to start the process of exiting and they'll get help from a government sponsored program that has helped hundreds of women exit the sex industry gracefully and without being rescued or arrested. I want to back up quickly. I'm sure New Zealand has shitty cops like everywhere has shitty cops. Um, and everywhere has some decent and good cops. I'm from a cop family myself. I personally know some decent and good cops. Uh, but 
a sex worker who encounters a shitty cop in the line of duty in the United States, for example, where sex work is criminalized, she's a vulnerable person. That shitty cop knows that he can leverage what she does for a living against her. He can threaten her with arrest. He can threaten her with criminal charges, felony charges, Mm -hmm. and then demand, as is often the case, it happens constantly, coerce her into providing him with sex. Sex workers are sexually exploited by the authorities, by police officers, because they are vulnerable, because they have nowhere to turn when they're being abused by a client or an ex-client. And it's staggering, the the disconnect and the hypocrisy of the anti-decriminalization crowd when it comes to their, you know, their their claim of the moral high ground is that they want to protect women. And criminalization does not protect women. It gets women who are doing sex works raped by cops. Yeah, it does the absolute opposite of protection. And that really puts the exclamation point um, on the fact that full decriminalization is is a much more um, effective way of managing violence and harassment and discrimination and all of those things. Um, before we, uh, there's something else I wanted to ask you about, but before we talk about that, any last words of insider advice for the caller about her situation? That was good advice about going and getting, you know, sending a cease and desist letter with the help of a, of an attorney and then going to a court uh, as, and sidestepping filing a police report. Any other practical advice? You know, a lot of times these worries are something that it just helps to talk talk to somebody with. We have a community support line at SWAP um, that is uh, peer-led, and she is more than welcome to call 877-776-2004 and speak with one of our counselors um, and maybe just talk out some different options and get a little bit more of a fuller picture of what's going on here and um, maybe help her kind of work through some resolutions um, that she feels good about. You know, the biggest thing that stops people from doing anything is fear. And um, she can talk to us without any kind of fear that her conversation is going to go anywhere. We can talk through a lot of different things and really determine the best way for her to move forward. And what was that number again? 877-776-2004. And you have a message today, uh, and I wanted you to come on to talk about this specifically, uh, for people out there who aren't doing sex work but would like to do something for people who are doing or have done sex work who could use our help. What is that? We have a couple of different things. Um, one of the things is we create Amazon wish lists for people who are incarcerated, and that helps them uh, be able to have some some things to do with their extra time. They can learn something. Um, We provide scholarships, uh, paralegal scholarships, um, some college scholarships uh, to help people uh, learn new skills so that when they leave prison, they have um, additional other kinds of things that they could do. Um, Our Amazon wish lists are probably the most popular. We try to put a lot of um, titles on there that are written by sex workers, uh, for sex workers, and um, that makes a big difference. But I would have to say that far and away, our most popular program and, and the one that has made the most difference in the lives of sex workers who are spending too much time in prison is our pen pal program. And uh, the way that is, is you fill out a form online, it comes to us, we match you up with a couple of pen pen pals, and you can start a dialogue um, in either written letter or some prisons have email now, and you can start to talk to sex workers about their experiences, and that connects them with the community on the outside and helps them uh, kind of learn how it's going to look like when they transition to the community. It helps often, there's research that backs this up, just for an incarcerated person to know 
that there are people on the outside who are aware they're incarcerated and care about them and are willing to engage with them. Yes. Um, since we started in 2016, we've connected more than 2,000 outside pen pals to more than 2,000 inside pen pals. And it's just made an incredible difference. And um, we just can't get enough of people who are outside and want to talk to someone who's inside and maybe lend some knowledge about sobriety or uh, dealing with conflict. Um, we, we try to make it a mentorship kind of program, and it, it really seems to have worked out well. I had a, a guy who had been talking with a couple of girls that were uh, inside, and she called him. She was the first call she made when she got to a work release center. She said, I just wanted to let you know that I'm out and that I'm okay, and I really appreciated having someone to talk to you while I was inside. Where can people who want to be pen pals for incarcerated sex workers get online? Where, where, where do they need to go to make that happen, to volunteer? You can go to www.swapbehindbars.org and then uh, click on the 10 ways to help incarcerated sex workers. And you'll see on there, there's several different ways you can help, but click on the pen pal and it will come up with a little form. It takes just a couple of minutes to fill out. It's especially great. We love our international pen pals. Um, the folks that live in the UK or the folks that live in Canada, um, we can connect you with electronic pen pals so that you can actually email and your pen pal has a much bigger likelihood of being able to write you back on email because it doesn't cost that Canadian stamp or that UK stamp. And an important note, it's swap with an O, swapbehindbars.org, S-W-O-P, Sex Worker Outreach Project. Quickly before you let go, there's something going on in Florida you wanted to tell me about. Yeah, um, we just we we have two bills that were were before the legislature, and they just got passed about two weeks ago. Uh, one of them was SB five forty, the other one was House Bill eight fifty one, and they were able to smash these bills together in the middle of the night and make a real Frankenstein kind of situation. They're going to be creating a prostitution registry where anyone who is convicted of a prostitution-related offense is going to go in this registry for five years. Very similar to a, um, a sex offender registry. Um, it's going to be a public database where anyone can can go on and look to see who it is that's on there. And this is going to create a lot of um, harm for sex workers. Um, one of the things that has been kind of making the rounds in the U.S. is this strategy to end demand. They seem to think that if they make all the all the clients afraid of uh, purchasing the services of a sex worker, they're going to reduce the amount of people who are saving or, or who are selling sex. The problem with that is, is your traditional economic models don't apply to the sex industry. When you have vulnerable sex workers who are engaging in sex work uh, for survival purposes, and all of a sudden their clients dry, dry up, they haven't been watching CNN, and they don't know exactly what it is that's going on. Um, all they know is that all of a sudden there's fewer clients than there, they used to be. They don't get up and they don't say, well, I guess I'll give this up and go get a corporate job with a health benefits in a company car. They just become more desperate, more vulnerable, and willing to engage in riskier behavior that puts them more at risk for violence. Right, less likely to refuse a client it, to turn down a client. If they Absolutely. had a bad feeling about it's a client and they tell. didn't have a lot of clients to choose from, they're going to go with that client that their gut is telling them to run from because otherwise they're going to starve. Yeah, and you know, uh, clients, when, when they're afraid of what might happen because they're aware of this end-demand strategy, they might, they might be afraid. And when someone is making that snap decision whether to get into a car or not, they don't know whether that client is just scared and, and needs a little reassurance or scary and is actually a predator looking to do harm. 
Alex Andrews, co-founder of Swap Behind Bars on the board of Swap USA. Go to swapbehindbars.org and get involved in Swap's pen pal project. Do something to help. Hey, Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. You have a wonderful day. Hi, Dan. This gay guy living in the Netherlands with a question about uh, first date etiquette. So this is something that's happened a couple of times. I was just out with this guy on a first date. Um, wasn't one of those situations where sparks were flying instantly. So I think we were just kind of figuring out if we like each other. And about an hour in, he starts to comment on how attractive the bartenders are at the place where we're having drinks. Now, I still have no idea if this was his idea of small talk or if this was his way of letting me know that in his eyes, the date was no longer romantic. But in either way, it just seemed like bad form. And I just want to know, am I unreasonable to want to live with the illusion that for the two hours, I'm going to be out with someone that I'm the center of their attention, bearing in mind that it's a first date, not a 27th date? Or is this a layer of pretentiousness that gay guys have decided to peel off the dating scene and I should find it refreshing and just get with it? I don't know. I don't think this is something gay men do. I think this is something that gay guy you were on a date with did. And in addition to demonstrating bad form, I think it demonstrates bad judgment. You nailed it. 27 dates in, in a long-term relationship with someone. Yeah, often gay couples will nudge each other and point out the hot barista, the hot bartender, the hot waiter, the hot truck driver, the hot marine or whatever. But not on a first date. On a first date, someone should have the common sense and the simple human consideration to want to protect the ego of the guy they're on that first date with, to want to demonstrate, at least in those two hours, at least until the 27th date or 27th month of the relationship, that, yeah, right now, I'm into you. Of course, because we're humans and males. We're clocking every other attractive person on the planet or in our vicinity. But you don't bring that up. You don't say that. Because you have no way of knowing how the person you're saying that to might feel about you having eyes or at least situational awareness of other hot people in your vicinity. You could be a guy who would be fine with that. Odds are better that you're not a guy who would be fine with that because most people wouldn't be fine with that on a first date and that your date didn't have the emotional IQ to suss that out for himself means one of two things. He was letting you know he wasn't that into you and – You realize in that moment you're not that into him or he was letting you know that he is pretty dense. He was showing you that he has bad judgment. Bad judgment results in behaviors that can be labeled bad form. Bad form on a date makes for a bad date. You don't have to have a second one with him. Hey, Dan. I am a 19-year-old non-binary poly person in the Midwest. Uh, I recently, within the last few months, started dating a couple like they had been together for about two years and then they opened up their relationship about six months ago and first I was dating the guy and then I started dating the girl as well and since then it's kind of turned into I'm casually kind of seeing the guy and the girl and I are getting a lot more serious because we just work so well together like it is insane the issue is he is not a good partner to her. He's kind of controlling, manipulative, jealous. I don't want to tell her to break up with him because I'm not trying to steal her. I'm not trying to, you know, but I, I just, I, I truly want the best for her because I care about her a lot. And he just doesn't treat her right. Like 
he will go onto her phone without asking and like look through her messages. And if she like, he found some pictures this guy sent her, it was just like him without a shirt on. He like freaked out and he was like, you didn't tell me about this. And like, we made plans tonight. And I mentioned it to him before she did. And he freaked out and was like, why didn't you tell me you made plans? We're thinking that he's probably not Polly, you know, down in his heart and he's just doing this for her. Also, she's told me that she thinks we would be better primary partners than they are. But they've been together for two years and he loves her so much, you know, and they're just moved in together into an apartment. And I just don't know what to do because I don't want to be selfish and try to take her for myself, which is not what I'm doing. I just, I really makes me upset how he treats her. I don't, I think she's a really wonderful person that deserves all the love and care in the world. And he is kind of a terrible guy, at least terrible to her. I don't know what to do. What you do is you break up with her. You stop seeing her and you tell her why. And then she gets to make her own choice. You tell her that being in a relationship with you means I'm sort of bank shot in a relationship with him. And I don't like him. And you don't like him much either. You've already said that you think I would be a better primary partner, which puts me in a really awkward position because then I'm that evil conniving third with an ulterior motive that everyone's going to blame if your relationship collapses and your jealous, controlling, probably not poly boyfriend will blame if your relationship collapses. So I am going to tap out now while you're still in this relationship, but I'll be out here. And if you get sick of this guy's bullshit and him diving into your phone and the fact that he's controlling and jealous and maybe not, down with the kind of poly relationship that you want to have. If you get rid of him and you're single and you'd like to date me, give me a call. But right now I don't want to be a part of this drama. And if that incentivizes her to end a relationship that you think is shitty and that she thinks isn't as good as the relationship she's having with you, well, two years ain't 20 years and two years and just moved into an apartment isn't 10 years and two kids this is the moment where she should be thinking about extricating herself from this relationship if the relationship is dysfunctional and shitty and isn't making her happy or her secondary partners happy. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's look to the tweets. Ellie tweets, thank you, fake Dan Savage, for talking about Romania and abortion. I grew up there. I grew up hearing stories of my mom's university classmates' illegal abortions. Some did not survive. Romanian women learned the hard way. Ellie added, if listeners want a glimpse into the horror of what women went through in Romania, watch four months, three weeks, and two days, a Romanian movie about those days. Americans should watch it and see what they're headed toward. Kaji Annihilatrix tweets, as much as the guys at work hassle me for listening to the Savage Lovecast all day, I know they're taking mental notes. Thanks from me and secretly from them too at Fake Dan Savage. You're welcome, Kaji. And dudes, hassling Kaji. Stop hassling Kaji and just relax and enjoy the podcast. No one's going to think you're gay if you enjoy a podcast that is 90% about straight people and straight sex. And finally, Unlucky Contender tweets, Dear Savage Lovecast, how is it that the utmost best caller audio quality ever in podcast history was a woman recounting a poop emergency? I have it on good authority. Nancy tells me that that was because that caller didn't call it in on the phone. They recorded it on their computer and then emailed us that question, which you can do by recording yourself on your own phone and emailing it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. 
And now your response calls, and I have to say, it was kind of weird that we didn't get any calls about that dude and his yoga class question. Actually, just kidding. We got billions of calls about the dude in the yoga class. Hey, this is in response to the guy that called about the yoga class and, like, the female energy being so high in the room. I question if you actually take your yoga practice seriously, if you even know what the word namaste means, because it means the God in me sees the God in you, and yoga practice is supposed to be about focusing on yourself, not the other people in the room. So that said, you also said something about having respect for women um, and wanting to respect their space. Well, maybe you don't understand. Women are pretty intuitive. And if you're in there focusing on their physical appearance, what they're wearing and what energy they're putting in the room rather than focusing on yourself, um, then you're missing something and you're not actually like, realizing that you're being a fucking creep. I am a yoga instructor and this is just a part of your journey and realizing that yoga is not here for your physical fitness and it's not here for you to pick up women. You mentioned that yoga is kind of a sacred thing. It's not kind of a sacred thing. Yoga is a sacred thing and in your journey, I'm glad that you're asking questions and not just blindly going all willy-nilly and trying to fuck chicks at your studio because that's not what it's about. You know, sometimes yoga reveals parts of myself to me that I maybe didn't realize was there, unpleasant parts of myself that I need to accept and let go of. I think that's what's happening for you here. You need to be acknowledged and accepted that you're being a fucking creep and this is not how you should look at women at all when you're in yoga class. Yoga, more than any other group fitness activities, calls in people not just to benefit the body, but also the mind, also the heart. You don't know why somebody is coming into the studio. Somebody really might just need a safe space to breathe and move and you do not want to interfere with that. Um, but with that being said, if something comes up organically, All right, we're going to have to wrap line, up the show because we're running out of internet. We're going to let the yoga kids continue to talk secretly offline about yoga class issues, but we got to wrap it up. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment about yoga or anything else for a future show, give us a call 206-302-2064. Keep your one-minute wonder and S&M questions coming in. We're going to do a one-minute wonder show. That's where the questions are a minute or less, and my answers are two minutes or less. And we're doing a whole show upcoming dedicated to your BDSM questions. Give us a buzz, 206-302-2064. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Swap Behind Bars on Twitter at Swap Behind Bars. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. I'll be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for joining